0: Please be seated. Now, as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. We're in a series of messages through the entire book of Romans, and we find ourselves here this morning, as Paul continues to move on in his wide-ranging critique of the human race. Last time, we saw him begin to speak to his fellow Jews in verses 1 through 16 of this chapter, but without naming them. It was kind of a subtle approach leading up to the passage today. Now, Paul calls them by name in his attempt to humble them from their self-righteousness. Paul anticipates and responds to Jewish objections to what he has written so far. You can imagine Jews protesting somewhat like this. Surely, Paul, you can't possibly treat us as if we were no different than Gentile outsiders. Have you forgotten that we have been given both the law, that is the revelation of God, and circumcision, that is the sign of God's covenant? Have you overlooked the fact That these three privileges, covenant, circumcision, and the law, are themselves tokens of the greatest privilege of all? That God chose us to be His special people? Are you saying that we Jews who have been uniquely favored by God's election are no better off than the Gentiles? How can you disregard these peculiar blessings of ours which distinguish us from the Gentiles? and protect us from God's judgment. Well, in such a reply, Paul, with his imaginary adversary, launches into a few verses to speak to the Jews and to humble them and to make it clear what a true sound of God looks like not Jew or Gentile. It's more inward, it's spiritual, when you're defining a true child of God. See, external access to the things of God don't make you godly. External possession and access alone to the things of God doesn't make us godly. I want you to notice Paul's outline, I believe, this morning. First, he gives us a false sense of security, a picture of a false sense of security in verses 17 through 20. And then he gives a generous dose of reality in verses 21 through 24, as he humbles his Jewish counterparts. And then thirdly and finally, he gives us a true sense of identity as a child of God in verses 25 through 27. Notice, first of all, a false sense of security. First, they were called Jews. Paul says, you bear the name Jew, which really means praise to Jehovah. Their name was itself God's declaration of what he wanted them to be. He wanted them to be a people that brought praise to God. Second, they rely upon the law and boast in God. That is the Torah. Their reliance upon the law as a matter of possession without practice. A reliance focused on a gift rather than the giver. Third, they boasted in God. Boasting in God can be a good if it is for the right reason, but they were boasting because they thought they were being favored by God. Fourthly, they prided themselves on knowing His will. All the Gentiles had was natural revelation, general revelation. We, the Jews, have special revelations. God has given us His law. He's spoken to us. Fifth, they could discern the things that were essential. That is, they prided themselves on being able to make moral superior judgments, far beyond the ignorant, unwashed Gentiles. Sixth, they were instructed from the law. The law was a light to their feet law was a badge. Now, these six things were wonderful privileges, but as wonderful as they were, they had a deluding influence and an effect on the Jews. When they compared their enlightenment to the abysmal theological ignorance of the Gentiles, they looked very good. We always look good when we compare ourselves with others, other human beings. But that's not the measuring stick. When they compared their enlightenment to the Gentiles. They look good to themselves. But you'll notice that whenever we boast in the things of God without a relationship to God, when we want the gift more than the giver, that has a tendency to lead to arrogant presumption and pride. And that's exactly what happened with the Jews. Look at verses 19 and 20. You are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. See, such pride and presumption can make one insufferable. And that is what it did to the Jews. They fancied themselves as guides. They fancied themselves as lights and correctors and teachers. And so they looked down with condescension and scorn on those Gentiles. They made a good showing in the flesh, but they were an empty suit. I remember years ago I worked in a law firm in Dallas, Texas as a docket clerk. And one day, there was the arrival of this great, great scholar, graduate of an Ivy League school. And he strutted around that office like a peacock. You know. thought he was God's gift to the firm. He wore the right clothes. He had the right degrees. But when he started working... It became clear that one could know the law, but know nothing about practicing the law. And he was baffled. And he got more and more confused. Had to take him by the hand to get him on a bus to go do research. He looked like a deer in the headlights because he had never put into practice that which he had known and learned and studied. That was the Jews. God gave them the law, not as a badge of ownership, not as a suit of clothes to be worn so that he looked down on other people. He gave it to them as a gift of his grace, and that law would do many, many things. It would convict them of sin, first and foremost. You see, the law was God's kindness to say to his people, "You." need me. You need salvation over and over and over again. Not just from Egypt, not just from Babylon, but most importantly, from a life of sin. You've got to be delivered. The Jews were so full of themselves and so proud but they needed to be brought low. This is the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is the reason why Moses wrote no less than four times, don't think that it's your righteousness. It's because of the wickedness of these people that I'm removing them from you. You don't have any righteousness. Over and over again, God had to drill that home to his people. They took the things of God, like the law in general, and circumcision in particular, and they wore these gifts devoid of the giver. These things were meant to bring greater intimacy to God or with God. And all they did was bring polarization from God in the heart of a Jew. Well, that is the false sense of security. And Paul gives a serious dose of reality. Look at verses 21 through 24. First we get an indictment, and then we get an application. The indictments in verses 21 uh, through 24 Paul turns the tables on them. God gave His laws to His people for a number of reasons, to restrain sin as a guide for life, but the chief reason was to expose sin. That's why Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 3 the ministry of death. That's what Paul calls the law of God, the ministry of death. He also calls it the ministry of condemnation. And that's not a bad thing, ladies and gentlemen. I suppose there are people that go through life trying to obey the Ten Commandments as if that would save them. That doesn't save anybody. If you break one commandment, you've broken them all. And Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount, if you break a commandment in your, in your mind, in your thoughts, you've broken a commandment. No one is just before God. No one is righteous. You'll notice he says, you teach others, do you teach yourself? Verse 21. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say to people, should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? Three sins among many. Stealing, theft, adultery, sexual immorality, robbing from temples. The third one is particularly interesting. You know, the Jews hated idols. They would not go into a foreign temple. They wouldn't touch anything that was foreign to them that smacked of idolatry. Well, apparently some of them did. They went in and they stole idols from pagan temples and they would cash them in. In such cases, as John Scott says, scruple broke down before thievish avarice. C.K. Barrett writes, quote, when theft, adultery, and sacrilege are strictly and radically understood, There is no man or woman who is not guilty of all three. And it reminds us of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the thoughts of our hearts. C.H. Dodd quotes a rabbi, a contemporary of Paul, as he bewailed the sin in his day. He said, "...the increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial, and judicial corruption bitter sectarian strife and other evils. This is what was going on in the Jewish community. And Paul says you're you're oblivious to this. You talk about the law and you find great pride that God gave you the law and he gave you circumcision, but you don't use the law as a means of greater intimacy and interaction with your God. And it's demonstrated in your life. The reality isn't there. Now, Paul is not trying to say that all Jews commit these sins all the time, but that they are particularly clear indications of the contrast between possession of the law and practice of the law. And it was pervasive in Judaism. And you'll notice how Paul uh, ends here in verse 24: as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This quotation apparently is from Isaiah 52:5 and th- uh, Ezekiel 36:22. In both texts, God's name had been mocked because his people had been defeated and enslaved. Could Yahweh not protect his own people? What Paul is saying is, you who have so many advantages, so many privileges, but you're unwilling to walk by faith. You're unwilling to repent of your sin. You're unwilling to engage this incredible God. In a relationship that is personal, you blaspheme his name. We blaspheme God's name. Whenever we parade ourselves as examples of righteousness, even as examples as Christians, and we live a double life, or we forget or refuse to deal with something God puts his finger on in our lives, Something is wrong. There can't be any hidden categories. The Bible says all of us, our lives are open and laid bare, naked, before the eyes with him with whom we have to deal with. And so Paul is basically popping the balloon of Jewish pride and presumption. And I hope he pops ours too. I hope he pops ours too. You see, this is not something that is exclusively Jewish. Jewish. We Christians can fall into this indolence too. We fall into it when we walk around and we demonstrate that we have more theological knowledge than someone else, and we make people feel stupid. That is not maturity. That's infancy. We do it whenever we sabotage Christian fellowship. You know, Christian fellowship is supposed to be people getting together and demonstrating their weaknesses and saying, pray for me about this. I've got a lying tongue, or I lose my temper. And they list a number of other sins. You know what we do in Christian circles most of the time? We respond in one or two ways. Either with flattery. Oh, no, 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 that's not you. Or with a lecture. Take two scriptures and call me in the morning. (laughs) I'm anxious because my child's gone astray. You know you're not supposed to be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. See, that's an example of flaunting knowledge and information, but not doing theology. You're not in sync with where the person is. And if you study the life of the Lord Jesus, you'll know he was always in sync with people because the Spirit of God led his life. He knew when to give a scripture. He knew when to say, I understand. He knew when to say nothing. And sometimes we would do a world of good in Christian fellowship if we just sat and listened and not come off like Mr. Know-It-All. Not flaunt our knowledge and not flatter others for the sake of gaining an advantage, but paying attention to the need of the moment. That's Christian fellowship. And we ought to encourage that instead of this other nonsense that we often call fellowship. Sometimes we pray the fact that we're Reformed. You know, you people know your Bibles, but you don't really study your Bibles. If you did, you'd be Reformed. Pride, Arrogance. If you understand the severities of the truth of the Bible, you ought to thank God for that, for revealing them to you. And you ought to desire that other people know those things and that they ask you about them because your theology is not just in a book. It's not just on a page. It is in your life, and they are drawn to that. You make them hungry to know what makes you tick. I need to move on. Paul gives an indictment, and then he gives an application. Look at verse 25 to 27. Paul has demonstrated that possession of the law as a lawbreaker is useless. Now he presents the fact that practice of the law as a lawbreaker is also useless. It's not only useless, it can disqualify one from the kingdom. Paul says your circumcision, because of your lawbreaking and boasting in the law, at the same time, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now you want to make a Jew mad, a conscience Jew angry. Say that to them. The Jews found their sense of security in possession of the law of God. They found their sense of identity in circumcision. This is my club card. I belong. It distinguished God's people from all the other peoples of the earth. But see, the Jews, while they received circumcision by the letter of the law, often forgot that the symbol signified a substance. And that substance was you are to be holy. You're to be different than the world. And that same cutting of the foreskin symbolizes the cutting of the heart. Has your heart been cut? Has it been rendered by the truth of God's Word? With conviction of God's presence and His grace and love for you. You see, like the gift of God's law and general circumcision should have led to humility and gratitude. Thanksgiving and a growing passion to walk by faith fully dependent upon this great God. Paul says you use circumcision to puff yourself up and to bring others down. You use your circumcision to create a distance between you and all others, especially those rotten Gentiles, rather than as a means to the end of greater intimacy and passion for the Lord. You look down your self-righteous nose at Gentiles when, in fact, they're in a better position to judge you rather than the reverse. Paul applies it. Now, he's doing this in love. We know from Romans 9, which we'll study later, that Paul genuinely loved his fellow Jews so much so that he said, I wish myself a cursed if only their eyes would be open and their ears unstopped that they would hear the gospel. Paul says, You have a false sense of security. And you need a generous dose of reality. You are a sinner like everyone else. The law levels us. And that's a good thing. Because we have to be made aware of our need before we pursue a Savior. Paul ends with a true sense of identity. Look at verses 25 to 27. This is the whole end of true religion. He who is not a Jew is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Verses 28-29, External religion is worthless without an internal relationship. That's what Paul is saying. And the external sign of circumcision is incomplete without an internal cutting of the heart. Just like on the day of Pentecost, they heard the word and they were cut to the heart. And whenever we're cut to the heart, we're left open and laid bare before God and we realize nothing in this world is going to satisfy me. No amount of financial security, no amount of any other form of security is going to really make me feel secure like Christ can. Paul is saying that the Jews, your background, your history, your gifts don't mean a thing without it, an internal change, without repentance and faith, without passion for the Lord and obedience. You remember, man looks on the outer appearance. God told Samuel, but God looks on the heart. You know, Mark 3, Jesus' mother's his mother and his brothers and sisters came to visit him while he was teaching. And he said, your your family's out here to see you. And he said, who is my mother and brother? Then he said, behold, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. Jesus was saying something very sobering there, that a relationship with him, a relationship with him, demonstrates itself. In devotion, in obedience, in humility, in constant repentance. And with a desire to say for the rest of your life, thank you, God, for saving me. The Jews practiced their righteousness before one another. Jesus said that in the Gospel of John. You receive praise from man. But you do not seek the praise that really matters, and that is the praise of God. And look at verse 29, the end of it. He who is a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The Jews sought the praise of man, and they considered themselves as praiseworthy. People that were immune to God's righteous judgment because of all these wonderful trinkets and gifts that they had been given. But you see, ultimately, your relationship to God is not based on your history or your heritage or your exposure to things of God or even the people of God. Each one must negotiate the narrow gate on his or her own. Each one must answer important questions honestly. Like this, how does my resume read You know, the first portion of this passage is the exact opposite of Paul's resume in Philippians 3. I was a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, and so on and so forth, all that self-righteous stuff. And then at the end of it, he said, I give it all away. I consider it done in comparison to faith in Christ Jesus. That's all that. What does your resume look like? The Jews in this passage are Paul's in Philippians chapter 3? Whatever was gained to me, I count as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Do you realize what he's saying there? That the Apostle Paul would go through his life on a never-ending, passionate pursuit of God's face. That I might be God's man, God's woman, wherever He has me. That I wouldn't sit and compartmentalize certain pet sins that I want. No, I want exposure to God. I want to be face to face as God said to Abraham. Walk before me face to face and live. I want to lose my life for the sake of finding it. Why I'm really here and what God wants out of me. That's costly. There's a question. What does my resume look like? Another question. Is Jesus really precious to me? not because my family taught me this, but because I've had an inward experience with the Son of God, and I believe my sins have been atoned for and paid for, and that I'm clothed in His righteousness, and I am secure as His child. Is Jesus the true treasure of my life hidden in a field? Am I looking for Him? Is He really the pearl of great value I desire? Or is it to promote self, Has the law of God brought me to a place of humility to see my sin and the need for a Savior? If you end every day counting how many commandments you obeyed this day, you're still in your sins. Christians end the day by saying, Lord, I failed you miserably. But thank God the perfect Israel, the perfect Son of God, obeyed completely. And I am in Christ Jesus, clothed in His righteousness, completely forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future? Is my boast in the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ according to the gospel, or is it someplace else? Finally, can I say with the psalmist, I love the words of Psalm 40, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, my ears you have opened. The psalmist is saying there that you can do, do, do all day long, but if your ears are not open, and there is not a willingness to submit and expose yourself to the truth of the gospel, doesn't matter what you do. God wants an open ear and an open heart. And the psalmist ends by saying, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written to me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your law, is within my heart. That's a converted man, a converted woman. You realize you can never, ever obey the law, but Jesus did perfectly. And he lived and died and rose again so that he might live in your heart. And by doing that, clothe you with his righteousness and credit his righteousness to your account so that God looks at you as, Jude says, simply because you're in Christ Jesus. Have you embraced him? Are you hungry for him? Are you letting any sin get in the way and block your fellowship with him? Any encumbrance? Keep him out. Throw it away. Lose your life, and you'll find it in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. They're sobering words. And they're not just for Jews, they're for all of us. Lord, help us to see what we need to see in our guilt and sin. Help us to rejoice in our hope in you. For you save us by your blood and your grace and mercy. Lord, make our relationship with you vital and a priority. For those who have never known you, I pray that you would do what only you can do is open hearts, open eyes, and invade hearts and lives in the gospel. Lord, do all these things and more, and we'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do, and we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.